Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's show, we're talking about the Farm Bill, a multi-year nationwide legislative package that governs nutrition assistance and agricultural programs. Then, we sat down for a discussion about the annual celebration Cinco de Mayo. Though the celebration this year has passed, we took a look at some of the common historical misconceptions of Cinco de Mayo and talked about how Cinco de Mayo became a part of the Chicano movement to empower the Mexican-American community. But first, the Farm Bill is said to affect every American in one way or another. The House Agriculture Committee re-enters the conversation about the Farm Bill every five years, with the last one in 2018, which was projected to spend $867.2 billion. Now, the Farm Bill is coming up on a stringent deadline, September 30th, to pass in Congress for the 2023 package. And to be short, it covers 12 sections, or titles, including commodities, conservation, trade, nutrition, credit, rural development, research, forestry, energy, horticulture, crop insurance, and miscellaneous provisions. Today, I talked about these 12 titles and what's important for the Central Coast with California's 24th district elected official, Congressman Salud Carbajal. Thank you so much, uh, Congressman Carbajal, for speaking with me today on The Indie. So today we're talking about the Farm Bill, a legislative package passed about every five years by the House Agricultural Committee. Now, it covers a broad range of issues pertaining to agriculture, which we'll get into in just a minute. But first, agriculture is the number one industry in the Central Coast. Why is this legislation important to families or individuals in our community? The Farm Bill is essential and imperative for the Central Coast and our entire nation. For our area, it's important twofold. One, as agriculture is the number one industry on the Central Coast, this bill provides uh, the funding and support to help farming operations prosper. It helps them have the support uh, through crop insurance, uh, research, conservation, all the various essential supports that they need to yield the highest production and to succeed and be prosperous as farmers. Secondly, it provides food security through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and the Women, Infant, and Children Program to so many thousands of families and children here on the Central Coast. So it's a twofold uh, benefit for our area as well as our nation for agriculture, as well as food insecure families. Great. Thank you so much for that. And I'm glad you brought up talking about not only the impact on our local farmers, but also with food benefits uh, pertaining to food insecurity. So you say that this bill will affect every Californian in some way. And the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, as you mentioned, SNAP policies provide around 5 million Californians with food benefits. So this is really one of the major components that affects your average citizen. Can you talk about this section, which perhaps falls under the nutrition title? Uh, 85% of the funding is directed to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And so it just tells you how significant the funding is 
that goes to this particular program. It's essential because there are so many food insecure families throughout the country, the state of California, and here in our own backyard of the Central Coast. So this is going to go a long way to make sure that families who are challenged to put food on the table have access to that food. Let's not uh, forget also about our farm workers and make sure that they are eligible for food through our food banks and uh, to make sure that they as well as they help our farmers succeed in uh, feeding our country and putting food on the table that their needs are also met to the extent possible. Absolutely. And you mentioned that the SNAP policies under the nutrition title comprise about 85% of the total investment. So the whole bill, how much money are we looking at? Well, the last bill was about $528 billion over five years. And the farm bill is broken up into 12 titles or sections. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing up those 12 sections, ranging from climate research, food nutrition, food insecurity, farmer's livelihood, etc. Could you talk more about aspects of these titles that you see as most integral to the Central Coast? I mean, we have so many constituents concerned with climate change and taking action on research. So I'm curious, what do you see your constituents favoring? Well, I think the Farm Bill has, I said, 12 titles. And if you look at that, I could go over all the various particulars that I think generally impact the Central Coast. Title II, for example, deals with conservation, which encourages uh, stewardship of our farmlands in a way that addresses climate change and various programs uh, for conservation. Title III uh, deals with trade. That always looks at markets throughout the world that rely on our products and making sure that, for instance, our berries, our almonds, our wine grapes here on the Central Coast, they have markets to be able to expand their, their trade with. Title IV, for example, is nutrition. We talked about the SNAP, a Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That is 85% of the farm bill. Title V is credit. Agriculture depend on uh, banking like any other sector, but they have their own farm service agency that provides specific credit lending to farmers. And that's a key program. Title VI, rural development, supports rural housing, for example. People don't realize that the Farm Bill also supports broadband and supports rural programs, not only infrastructure, but infrastructure that sometimes is perceived as non-traditional, such as housing, facilities, business and utility programs through various grants. Title VII, for example, deals with research, constantly looking at how we can provide enhancements, whether it's alternative pesticides, whether it deals with agriculture research, uh, mechanization research. Title VIII, for example, deals with forestry, forestry management programs. Title IX deals with energy and encourages farm operations to invest in renewable energy systems through various programs, and there's various grant programs for them. Title X, we're almost there, uh, horticulture. This is perhaps one of the most important ones in addition to the other ones I mentioned 
for the Central Coast because it supports our specialty crops, which is unique to California and the Central Coast. It promotes organic agriculture, and it actually also authorizes a regulatory framework for industrial hemp, which goes to one of my priorities that I will touch on in a while, which is cannabis, making sure that we move towards acknowledging it as a commodity like we do hemp and other uh, commodities. Title 11, crop insurance. There's two types of subsidies that agriculture throughout our country receives. One is just a subsidy based on the type of uh, farming and yields and losses that they have. And they get a straight across the board subsidy. California doesn't get any of those subsidies. But one way to address uh, that inequity is through crop insurance. In California, crop insurance provides a much more essential risk management tool to our farmers. And lastly, we have uh, Title 12, which is miscellaneous. It includes uh, programs for livestock, poultry production, uh, and a number of beginning farmers and rancher operations as well. That's kind of an overview of all the titles in the Farm Bill and how they relate or not to our area. Mm-hmm. In just hearing that breakdown, I mean, the Farm Bill is a major safety net for agriculture, not only in the Central Coast, California, but nationally. Um, so I guess honing back in on the Central Coast, what issues are specific to this area and how does the Farm Bill help to identify and mitigate those issues? Well, the issues uh, that are important to our area is also during disasters, such as wildfires, um, drought, flooding that we just had. The Farm Bill goes a long way in making sure that there's the type of disaster funding support to help our farmers during those incidences of disaster. The Farm Bill and my priorities uh, have focused around research. What kind of pesticides do you uh, use that are less toxic uh, to achieve the same production yields? Uh, what can make agriculture more sustainable? And how, what kind of research is needed to enhance mechanization? You name it, research is imperative if we're to uh, make sure that we have a resilient agriculture industry. SNAP I mentioned earlier. SNAP is essential when you consider the uh, food insecurity that exists on our central coast. Specialty crops. You know, there's commodities like soy, wheat, corn. Those are those commodities you find in the south and, and back east. Here in California, uh, we have specialty crops, which are slightly different than the crops, the commodities of other places. And so my priority is to make sure that California specialty crops continue to get the support that agriculture throughout the country receives. Another priority in nexus with the Farm Bill is, of course, a conservation and addressing climate change and providing the grant program and the funding and the tools to incentivize farmers to make sure that they're implementing practices that make agriculture more resilient, more sustainable, and address carbon sequestration. And finally, taking the cannabis industry out of the shadows by once and for all, calling it what it is, an agriculture commodity like other commodities, and getting the Farm Bill to acknowledge cannabis as such. Of course, 
uh, there's other impediments that exist beyond the authority of the Farm Bill. The Farm Bill, again, goes back to just uh, characterizing cannabis as a commodity, which is something I've been an advocate of and continue to fight for. So knowing the differences in state legalization of cannabis across the nation, what are negotiations like with cannabis in Washington? Well, I'm not so sure that I would call them negotiations, although that's one way of characterizing it. But I think there's a a discussion that's been going on. And the question is, at what critical mass are we going to have the momentum to move some of these legislative proposals forward? When it comes to the Farm Bill, on recognizing cannabis as a commodity, like other commodities. But then there's other tangential issues and impediments and barriers that go beyond the Farm Bill, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, IRS issues that need to be addressed. Uh, The legitimacy of cannabis by moving cannabis from a Schedule 1 to a different, a lower scheduling of a substance uh, to provide the banking system the ability to provide banking to cannabis businesses and farmers. Those are all things that need to take place. There's been a lot of bills that have been proposed in the in around these different issues. Some have made it very close, but to date we haven't been able to get those bills over the finish line. However, there is a critical momentum that's been moving forward, and I think we will see those legislative proposals ripen and come to fruition in the very near future, in the next few years. Thank you. I appreciate you bringing up uh, the push in in Washington for classifying cannabis as a commodity in the Farm Bill. That was something that I definitely wanted to discuss, um, knowing that this is a priority. So I wanted to move the conversation into economics. You say that each section of the bill has broad economic benefits for the Central Coast. How you measure success of the bill economically? First and foremost is the, uh, the prosperity of our farmers. Are they able to achieve the yields that they had hoped for? But again, farming is subject to the elements. And changing climate threatens that. That's why it's so important to, uh, for agriculture to do its part in addressing climate change as well by becoming more resilient, more sustainable. Provided that... Agriculture hits its benchmarks of production. That is a healthy outcome for what is a successful farm bill because that means that the resources have been able to support our farmers in such a way that they continue to prosper at the expectations that they had hoped for. Also, a successful farm bill is one that continues to provide the safety net for our food insecure families and individuals throughout our country. When we see that uh, poverty continues to be addressed or reduced, that's a good benchmark for our ability to demonstrate that the funding has not gone in vain and has not been wasted and continues to provide a support to low-income families and food, families that are food insecure. The more our children have the appropriate nutrition and meals and food that they need makes for children to succeed better in schools. So school attainment and and benchmarks of achievement is another way of looking at 
how we're succeeding with certain uh, families that are in need and that are food insecure. I mean, this bill just, you know, hits so many pockets of life and industry. I can understand why there's many metrics to measure success. So speaking of success, I want to talk about the 2018 Farm Bill, the past Farm Bill, but first I want to backtrack to its roots. So, you know, the the bill dates back all the way to the 30s in response to the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. This legislation was a part of Roosevelt's New Deal. So we know that this legislation has grown or expanded since then, but can you explain what the bill has evolved to be versus the 2018 Farm Bill? Well, keep in mind, the the first farm bill was uh, came about during the Depression in 1933. And there were three goals that were underpinned that legislation. One was to keep food affordable for Americans. Two, to ensure that the United States maintained uh, an adequate food supply. And to protect and sustain America's vital natural resources. The earth, the land, so that it could produce agriculture in a way uh, that addressed issues like the Dust Bowl, when we had all those challenges sustaining topsoil. That was the initial goals, which in itself was a major, major framework. Well, clearly that evolved to now 12 titles, the ones that we discussed earlier. And um, I think it's kept pace with our changing times, needs of agriculture, needs of our American people. And at one point, it was melded, I believe, in the 70s. They, you brought in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program with traditional uh, agriculture uh, support programs. And it's probably one of the most brilliant things that happened because it merged two uh, intersecting issues. One is promoting our uh, and supporting our farmers, and two... Uh, making sure that the food that we grow and sustain our country is also mindful of the support we need to give to those families that are food insecure. Food in our country is a national security issue. Uh, Not only is it important for those that are food insecure, but could you imagine if we didn't produce the levels and the types of food that we did uh, or need Uh, we need to look no further than the pandemic. If we didn't have food security as a country and depended on food coming in from other countries to sustain us, we would be in a world of hurt. But early on from the 1930s, I think President Roosevelt and Congress, I think, saw that it was imperative that we address uh, the sustainability of agriculture as a national security issue. And it's evolved to those 12 titles that I mentioned earlier, and rightly so. I think it just speaks to a healthy vision and framework that has helped uh, sustain us. And today is one of the most important pieces of legislation that we continue to promulgate about every five years as a nation and modernize it each and every time. For example, About a decade ago, we didn't have some of the support for uh, specialty crops here in California like we do now. Crop insurance is absent from the benefits afforded to uh, California farmers. And even today, only 80 
crops of the 400 plus crops in California that are produced have access to crop insurance. So there's a long ways to go to make sure that specialty crops in California have equity and the support through the farm bill that other uh, states get for their farming industry. Very interesting. Uh, I appreciate your perspective. So thank you so much for that information. Now, I wanted to shift the conversation into talking about the House Ag Committee. Can you identify any weaknesses or gridlocks, or can you speak to any partisanship in the committee? Regrettably, um, I think the one major partisanship issue that always comes up, uh, work requirements. My colleagues on the other side of the aisle have an obsession and fixation without basis or research, just a fixation that more people that, that receive SNAP should be working without knowing that the majority of the people that do receive SNAP benefits are already employed. And those that are not employed are because they, are, they don't have access to childcare or they're uh, disabled or they're seniors. So again, trying to continually change and enhance work standards without the science or the data is a solution in search of a problem that doesn't exist. And it's the one trick pony uh, that always comes out during negotiations, every farm bill. And so we are going through that right now. I think the majority, if not overwhelmingly, all of those that des- that receive uh, SNAP benefits are either working or can't work because they fall into one of those buckets of individuals that can't work. And as we talked about earlier in this conversation, SNAP is about 85% of the investment. And I think aside from work requirements, Um, there's a major push from Republicans to cut back on spending. So from the viewpoint of spending, what's going on with both sides of the aisle in terms of um, cutbacks in in the debt ceiling? Republicans have a a challenge with um, fiscal responsibility. Let me say what I mean by that. They're selective when they want to exert the fiscal responsibility card a few years ago, when I first came to Congress, there was a huge uh, tax reform proposal that was moved forward, uh, and it brought about $3 trillion to our deficit over 10 years, and it gave 83% of the benefit of that bill to the top 1%, richest Americans and wealthiest corporations, but it never came up with a pay for it. So what it, did, what it did is strap our deficits and our debt with $3 trillion over 10 years. But yet now, they've decided to now go back to being fiscally responsible, as they say. And now there's, they're, they're using that, and they're looking at ways that they can cut. And they are trying to cut across the board, not only SNAP, public safety, veterans programs, uh, and it comes up to about 22% of funding cuts to veterans programs and our public safety, our police officer programs. That's what they're proposing at this point in time. 
Thank you for that insight. Now, also casting into the future, what does the timeline look like? I mean, if 2023 is the year for the next bill and there has to be um, a hearing to pass this by September 30th, what does this next couple months look like? Right now we're having hearings on uh, various aspects and, and titles of this, uh, the farm bill. And eventually we would mark it up and then it would come to the House floor for a vote. The Senate has to do the same. And then you conference uh, both bills into one. And then whatever comes out of that goes to the president for its signature. Right now, I think we're on hold from finalizing marking up the farm bill because right now what's in play is my Republican colleagues are playing games with the debt ceiling, lifting the debt ceiling. Keep in mind that Democrats lifted the debt ceiling three times under the previous administration, Trump administration, without gamemanship, brinksmanship, just did it because what lifting the debt ceiling means is just paying your bills looking back. It's not addressing spending moving forward. As a Democrat and as Democrats, we believe that we need to pay our bills, take that action separately, and then negotiate how we want to move forward on spending. And that's totally legitimate. But to conflate the two is irresponsible and a whole new low for shenanigans, gamemanship, and partisanship in Washington. This could be catastrophic if um, the Republicans don't agree to lift the debt ceiling uh, and fixate on trying to link the debt ceiling lifting with future spending before we get to the spending process. And if there is not a hearing to pass the Farm Bill by September 30th, would the legislation revert back to the 1930 era bill or would there be an extension of some sort of the 2018 farm bill? Some of the provisions could resort back to the old farm bill framework. But more than likely, if we're not able to get it together, what likely will happen is a continuing resolution that allows us to move forward with status quo funding. Thank you so much. And my last question is, you're asking the community to help you write the bill. So can you go into more detail about how your constituents can get their voices heard? We're asking the public at large, farmers, farm workers, uh, families that are food insecure, and just our society and community as a whole to step up and speak up. What, why they think these programs are important, what we should be doing, what we should be investing in more or less, to give me their feedback so that I could go back and be a more effective advocate for these priorities. And they could do that by contacting my office uh, via letter, via email, via phone calls, via petitions, whatever they see fit to communicate with my office about the Farm Bill. Great. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. And before we wrap up, is there anything you would like to add that you think I missed or you want listeners to know? I just want listeners to know that this is a very important uh, legislative proposal that moves forward every five years and that it has major implications for our district as it does for our nation. One, to support our farming community and the farm workers that sustain those op farming operations. 
And two, it supports all families and individuals that are food insecure. Two major uh, significant issues that impact our Central Coast and families and farmers here in our area. To get your voices heard by Congressman Salud Carbajal, he is asking for community help to draft the 2023 Farm Bill with the House Agriculture Committee. To learn more about the package or to find Carbajal's survey link, I've included that in our show notes. Now, next up, the indie reporter Chiloe Spellius sat down with Melinda Gandara, an adjunct faculty member in the Department of American Ethnic Studies at Santa Barbara City College and a trained art historian. Gandara joined us on the show to talk about the rich history behind Cinco de Mayo and to talk about her empowering story of searching for historical truth. Hello, and welcome back to The Indie. My name is Chiloe Spilius, and today we are diving into the history and significance of Cinco de Mayo. Though this year's celebration is now over, this week we're taking a look at how and why Cinco de Mayo came to be. Cinco de Mayo is a holiday that commemorates the anniversary of Mexico's victory over the French Empire at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. I was so excited to take on the story and to learn more about Mexican history. I had the honor to sit down with Melinda Gandara for a discussion regarding the significance, evolution, and effects that Cinco de Mayo has had on both Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Melinda is a trained art historian and a teacher of Mexican literature. She has deep roots with Mexico, and it has been an honor to have her on the show. Can we begin by having you explain your relationship to Mexico? I have a direct relationship with Mexico. My father is a naturalized citizen, which means he was born in Mexico. Uh, my mother was born on the border in El Paso, and I was as well. So our relationship to Mexico one is intimate. My mother was born on the border, I was born on the border, and I was very, very much aware of our Mexicanness. And I think for me, I have to be very honest with you, I think the most important influence that I had growing up was my grandfather. And my grandfather was a very proud Mexican. And whenever we would visit, we, at this point we were living in California, we'd go to Texas at least once a year, and he'd always say, what are you learning in school? And I would tell him, and he'd say, that's not true. And out of respect, I never challenged him, but I used to be always questioning, what does he mean by that? Why would the schools teach us things that aren't true? Exactly, exactly. And somebody who excelled in school and really loved learning, this was really hard. But what he was doing was he was giving me the tools for oppositional narrative. He was giving me the ability to understand that there are always more than one side to the story. And that what I was learning was simply incomplete. And I didn't really get to thank him for that before he died, but that's what he was giving me. He was giving me the lessons to be able to understand my own heritage. Absolutely, and even to give you the tools to see things from a different perspective or through a different lens. Absolutely. For the listeners that are not familiar with Mexican-American history, can we start by going back in time to the 18th century and set the scene of some of the tensions between Mexico, the United States, and Europe, specifically France, and the different factors that led to the Battle of Puebla? I think this is a very important point to, to get across. The 18th century it was a very um, disruptive century for Mexico in particular. 
And we have to actually go just a little bit further back. We have to understand that Mexico was colonized by Spain. So Mexico gains its independence in 1821. Uh, it's looking for ways to figure out how they want to have a constitution. They become a Republican government initially. And what's interesting about the process as well is that in 1823, the United States under President Monroe had what's called the Monroe Doctrine. This was a U.S. policy that warned European powers not to intervene in the political affairs of the countries in the Western Hemisphere. So this meant the United States, and it certainly meant Latin America. Uh, so what this was doing was literally putting a stop or a halt to European colonization and empire building. So the Monroe Doctrine goes into place. This is 1823. Now, what's interesting about the Monroe Doctrine is it's specifically targeting European countries and their inability to, to, to basically mess with the affairs on, on the Western Hemisphere. But it's not specifically saying that the United States can't do the same. So what happens? There's a loophole. Oh, there's a loophole. And that loophole leads us to 1846 to 1848, which is the U.S.-Mexico War. So in 1846, the U.S. declares war on Mexico. This is President Polk now. And he declares that U.S. blood has been shared on U.S. soil. So this idea of bloodshed on U.S. soil is what is the driving force. And the war is devastating for Mexico because what ends up happening is before the war, the United States had already made it very clear that they wanted to go from sea to Chinese sea. They wanted to go coast to coast. And we know this because diplomatic relations were sending in information that we wanted to purchase parts of Mexico so that we could have places like more of Texas, and really create the line at what we would term more of a natural border, which would be the uh, Rio Grande, what we call it here in the United States, or the Rio Bravo in Mexico. This is in a very aggressive move, and this war ends in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And what that treaty basically does is it takes nearly half of Mexico's northern territory, well, it takes Mexico's northern territory, literally almost half of its territory as, mm -hmm. as it was at that time, and it becomes part of the United States. So the treaty is signed, and what ends up happening is we have Mexicans here now in this, this land that would be now the United States, and now you've got Mexicans and Californios here in California in particular, who now are U.S. citizens. So what ends up happening is this Monroe Doctrine allowed for the United States to go in and interfere. Now what's interesting is in 1861, Benito Juarez, this is now the president of Mexico, he declares a decree on a suspension of foreign debt. And he does this particularly um, with the French, and so Napoleon III uses this as a pretext uh, for armed intervention. Now, some would argue uh, that he's really doing this as a means to restore the French monarchy back into Mexico. So on May 5th, 1862, the Battle of Puebla, the French storm in, and they are going to go through Puebla to get themselves to Mexico City. And this battle, now it, again, we don't really have clear indication exactly how many people were on each side. 
Uh, so I'm going to use some rough numbers. We, we know there were over 5,000 5, French uh, soldiers, very well equipped, very well armed, and less than 5,000 uh, Mexican soldiers, poorly outfitted, outdated military um, weapons and armor. So there's a clear distinction between those that are ready to fight and those that are that lack the complete means to do so. But what ends up happening is that the French get caught up in the rather hilly and cactus-filled landscape. And it, 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 it's, it's quite lovely to say that um, Zaragoza led the battle and uh, overthrew the French uh, and, and, and marked it in, in a victorious way. So we celebrate Cinco de Mayo as a means of understanding that it was the underdogs who basically were able to change the course of direction for the French. Now, it didn't mean that the French actually didn't continue onward. So what ends up happening is, just to continue a little bit forward, in 1864, the French government places Austrian Archduke Ferdinand Maximilian as the emperor in Mexico. So they end up getting back into the picture. And in doing so, this, this is important for us to realize that it was the U.S., uh, once this was done, the following year in 1865, the U.S. government put a lot of pressure on diplomatic and military uh, uh, pressure to support the Mexican president, Benito Juarez, uh, so that he could lead a successful revolt against the French, uh, which he does. And in 1867, Maximilian is executed and the images are sent worldwide. I mean, this is just, it's, it's marked in, uh, in a historical battle. And in essence, um, in 1872, it becomes, Mexico becomes a democratic republic. And then we're gonna get some more shifts and turns because what will happen in the latter part of that century is that Porfirio Diaz will come in and he will become what we know as a dictator uh, who gets ousted in the Mexican Revolution in 1910. But that period of time that we're talking about, you can see there's so much disruption. And in that disruption, there was so much instability for Mexico. And so in many ways, these European powers were always very aggressive in seeing Mexico as weak, underestimating the, the people, and, and this, to me, this battle is one of those clear victories that marked a place in time. And for the underdogs to win, you know, it's, it's a celebratory measure. Right, which this brings us along to our next question. What did this victory against the French mean for Mexico at the time? It was absolutely important. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that whenever you can't be the underdog, so to speak, and to basically take the supreme power and to be able to have that kind of victorious momentum, it really sparks the nation, right? The nationhood to be able to rally and find identity uh, again with its Mexicanidad. It really lays ground for a celebration of also Mexican identity, right? And the Mexican identity is a mestizo identity. It's this mixing of all these cultures. Right. Thank you so much for that timeline. Cinco de Mayo is more celebrated in the United States than in Mexico as a way of celebrating Mexican heritage and culture, especially in areas with higher Mexican-American populations, such as Texas and California. 
How did Cinco de Mayo become a part of the Chicano movement and how was this holiday used to empower Mexican-American communities? That's a great question. We have to go back in time again because I think that this will, will help understand what's happening. When I talked about 1848 and I talked about end of the U.S.-Mexico War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, what well, we have to remember that all of a sudden now you have a number of Mexicans who are becoming U.S. citizens and they are allowed under that treaty to hold their language and culture. This pride in identity is part of a shared cultural heritage. And one of the things I think that's so important, Professor Hayes Baptista, his research shows that the victory of Puebla, when it spread, it invigorated this pride, right? And so people here in the United States, because now they are part of the United States, started to to get excited about this, right? This was this was a, a victory not only for Mexico, but for many Mexican Americans who are now on the U.S. side of the border. In 1910 to 1920, we have the Mexican Revolution, and what happens there in the Mexican Revolution is another chaotic moment in time, where all of a sudden Mexicans are even being pushed out of. Uh, Mexico and being pulled into the United States. So we call this period of history the push-pull period. So what ends up happening is Cinco de Mayo kind of falls off the radar. It gets revitalized in the 1970s, late 60s, 1970s, with the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. And it gets revitalized with the Chicano Movement because it is, you know, the underdog wins, and this is a sense of national pride. So now all of a sudden we've had this kind of these gaps, we've had these historical markers as to why it kind of fell off the radar, but only to have it revitalized. And I think this is important for us to understand because it was part of, of, of affirming the, the land as being once Mexico, affirming a long history of Atzlan, the, the place in which the Mexica have left their homeland to make their way into what we now know as Mexico City. So it has deep roots. And this right revitalization that's coming from the Chicano movement is one about the land, right? And tracing the historical markers of placing that land back to when it was part of Mexico and re-establishing those lineages, right? Those, those lines that go back in time. The Cinco de Mayo, a battle of Puebla in particular, is just, it's, it's about an inspiration. Right? And so what you'll see are Viva la Raza, Viva Cinco de Mayo. So all of a sudden this becomes part of this cultural self-determination. And it is also an affirmation of this uh, indigenous past. Why and how do you think the narrative of Cinco de Mayo has shifted from a battlefield victory over the French to the thought of it being Mexico's Independence Day? I think that what ends up happening is we, we celebrate 4th of July, and I think a lot of people don't know their history. And, and we should know the history of our neighbors. We should know what's happening in Mexico. This should be part of the dialogue. So it's an utter confusion. And I think that what ends up happening is, you know, in, so many people just want to celebrate. It doesn't matter what it is. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries. You know, we, we are looking for the next celebration of the next holiday. And what's so interesting is that the Battle of Puebla is not a Mexican holiday. Um, so it's so interesting to see how we have created, uh, in essence, a, a false understanding in aligning it with Independence Day. How do you choose to remember this day and what does Cinco de Mayo mean to you? 
For me, I have been raised believing in underdogs. I have believed in the power that one can be victorious over oppressive power structures. I'm always for the underdog. So how will I celebrate Cinco de Mayo? I, I don't. I celebrate it in my heart every single day when I see the men and women who pick up cans in my local community to put food on their table. And I'm humbled by their ability to work so hard in the jobs so many don't even realize that are there in the back rooms of the restaurants, washing dishes, washing laundry. Our community could not survive without the underdogs. So I celebrate those that are often invisible and I raise my glass to them. Again, thank you, Melinda, for sharing your knowledge and parts of your story with us. With the Indie, I'm Chiloe Spilius. I just love that last quote. Thank you so much, Melinda Gandara, for joining us on the show today. It was a pleasure to learn from you. Well, that's it for this week's episode. And as always, you can find more information in the show notes and stay up to date with The Indie Pod by following us on Instagram at The Indie Pod. Reporting from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, you're listening to The Indie. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and we'll see you next week.